This podcast is brought to you by Steinberg, creators of the VST protocol and digital audio workstations like Cubase and Nuendo. At Steinberg, we put creativity first. Learn more at steinberg.net. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. Heavy music wouldn't sound like it does today without the help of producer and engineer Nick Raskulinix. We interviewed Nick back in 2005 for Tape Op number 50, and so it seemed like a good time to check back in with him to chat about his move to Nashville, his new studio, and his work with bands like Rush, Alice in Chains, Mastodon, Foo Fighters, and more. Enjoy! Take out the story Last time we talked to you, it was... You'd worked with Foo Fighters and... Uh, a few things had gone mm-hmm. pretty well, but it was, it was definitely a lot has happened since then. Yeah, that was back in 2005. Was it? Oh, my I God. I had done a couple Foo Fighters records, and I had yeah. done uh, Velvet Revolver. That's right, yeah. And I had done a record with a band called Ash from the UK, and mm-hmm. a couple other assorted things, yeah. Fireball Ministry. Right, right, some good stuff. Yeah. Things were moving. Since then, <laughs> since then, it's you moved to Nashville. I moved to Nashville in 2008, yeah, and um, I've been going pretty much non stop <laughs> since then. It feels like it's, it's yeah. just been going and going. <laughs> how did you end up with a place? Well, how did you end up deciding to move to Nashville in the first place? So, in about 2007, you know, as the decline of the beginning of the decline of kind of the music industry right. and record sales and all that stuff. It just felt like living in California, especially living in Los Angeles, where we were living and how we were starting to live was just kind of headed towards beyond our means, mm-hmm. you know, and um, we wanted to start a family. Yeah. And me and my wife are both from Tennessee. Right. So it just kind of felt like a natural decision to get back to Tennessee, yeah. you know, because I, I went to California to kind of find myself and mm-hmm. find my career and am I going to am I going to play in a band and right. we're going to get signed and make records and do all that or <laughs> am I going to do this recording thing that I had already started doing before I moved right and it just kind of I kind of gravitated towards the recording part of it and yeah. as I was doing yeah. it through the 90s I worked at Sound City as an assistant right. and worked with lots of great engineers and producers and kind of just got consumed by that whole thing yeah and that so that you know 12 years later yeah in 2007 it all kind of worked right it, it all clicked and then for whatever the read the stars aligned for me <laughs> and it yeah and it just all worked right so coming to nashville felt like the right thing to do for you know a few different reasons but you know when right. we came to visit nashville and look for a house I realized that there were a lot of great studios here. Right. And there's the whole infrastructure for what, as a producer, I need for my bands. There's airports and cartage services and lots of good food and plenty of places to stay. And so it just kind of, you know, we visited here like three times and found a house. And, you know, we had already had one child and it just seemed like a good place for her to grow up. And we had a second second baby on the way. And (laughs) we just kind of started thinking about quality of life right. for our children. I mean, California is amazing. I loved living in California. Right. Every time I go visit, I love it. But it's it's really a work environment, too. It's yeah. heavy work. For me, anyway, it didn't really seem like the right family move. Mm-hmm. 
And I know lots of great kids have been raised in California <laughs> and there's lots of successful parenting. But just for yeah, us, yeah. me and my wife, we're both from Tennessee. It just felt it felt right to come back to Tennessee. Right. And, um, you know, to make records in Nashville was way cheaper than to make them in L.A. So it helped out on recording budgets, oh, you know, because, you know, recording budgets started to get smaller in the rock world. 2007, right. 2008, upwards until now. I get budgets to yeah. make big rock records that are a quarter of what they used to be 10 years Jeez. ago. So living in yeah. a place like Nashville makes it a lot more affordable to get the same amount of time that yeah. I used to, used to take making records. Right. I can still get that same amount of time here versus not really being able to in California because studios are more expensive. Food's more expensive. Right. Gas is more expensive. Lodging Everything. is more expensive. So... I've kind of figured out a way to be able to roll with kind of any budget here in Nashville. Right. Whereas, it, I mean, you're known for like heavier music and stuff in general. And then here you come into like country music capital. Did it that did feel funny at first. It did. And I didn't tell anybody I was moving. <laughs> I, I, I kind of kept it a secret, yeah. you know, and a lot of people didn't even realize some people don't even realize I moved to this day. They'll see you in LA or something. Yeah. Like, hey, yeah. <laughs> did you move? I'm like, yeah, I live in, I've lived there for 10 years now. <laughs> yeah, it, it was, um, it was definitely a, not so much a concern, but it was on my mind a little bit. Hey, are these rock bands and metal bands going to want to come to Nashville? But right. I kind of realized that they just wanted to work with me right. because I had made records outside of LA. I'd made records in Toronto and New York and Chicago. And I kind of realized that it wasn't really so much about the location as it was about just being able to be in the same room with me and, you know, produce right. an engineer and do what I do. I haven't, <laughs> it never, it was never, it's never been an issue. Yeah. I mean, I've had bands from all over the world come to Nashville, from Sweden and right. Europe and, you know, Japan. Right. You know, they all come to Nashville to be with me. So as long as I can provide a good quality studio environment, yeah. it, it it hasn't been a problem at all. <laughs> I mean, every once in a while, yeah. there's, there's bands that don't want to come to Nashville. Right. So I'll go to where they are. Yeah. But it's not so much about Nashville itself. It's just for what? whatever reasons... Whatever logistics. Or yeah, it's a, it's, yeah, it's a logistical thing. Some dudes don't want to, you know, they don't want to stay in hotels. They want to mm -hmm. sleep in their bed. Yeah. You know, and as a yeah, producer, sure. it's my job to facilitate making the recording wherever we have to make it at. Yeah, totally. You know, it's not so much about me, yeah. but in Nashville, I can provide myself and a kick-ass recording studio. Right. It, it works. It's been working. How did you end up working out of the uh, Dark Horse So. Studios? A few years after I moved here, in uh, about five years actually, in two back in two thousand thirteen, mm -hmm. I had been working a lot around Nashville at various studios. I worked at Blackbird a lot. Mm -hmm. So, again, as the record industry was starting to decline, so were the budgets for my records. Yeah, I kind of almost got priced out of it. Right. A little bit, you know, because it's expensive mm -hmm. to work there. Right. So I started to look for the possibility of either finding a room to move into to like unpack all of my stuff for good. Yeah. Or build a room, do a build out, right. find, you know, an old warehouse or an old Something. car garage or some old space that I could yeah. not have to put too much bread into, but make it sound right. Yeah. Because um, I had just bought a console. Right. In 2010, I bought a big 72 channel SSL 6000 wow. that was a buddy of mine brokered a deal where he took three analog consoles out of a studio and put a digital consoles in. And he's like, Hey Nick, I 
Wow. I know you love this console. I've got one for sale. So I bought it. Right. And I just put it in storage because <laughs> I knew eventually I was going to either end up in a room or I was right. going to build build a room. Right. So um, fast forward to 2013. I had There's a studio in Franklin, which is where I live, down where I live, called Dark Horse. And it's yeah. kind of out in the woods and it's very vibey and yeah. super private and secluded. It's about 17 miles south of downtown Nashville. Right. Really close to my house. That's so cool. All my kids were really little still, so it was easy for me to go back and forth. Oh, man. It was great. It was yeah. perfect, man. So I, I moved all of my gear in there. I installed my... Con- I, uh, I happened to run into the guy that owns the place mm-hmm. kind of haphazardly, and was his name was Robin Crow, and he's a right. great guy. I, I was doing a mix at my house, just up in my man cave, yeah. and I was like, this sucks up here. I can't tell what's happening. <laughs> yeah, right. So I called him. I was like, hey, man, do you have a control room that I can come and just listen to this mix in? Yeah. And he was like, well, I got one, but it's booked. And the other one, I kind of decommissioned the other studio because he started a recording school. So he took all the oh, gear wow. out of one of his rooms and put it in a school situation to right. teach. And one thing led to another and I came and checked the space out and I was like, this will be great for me. So I <laughs> just a handshake deal. Just we move in. Yeah. We agreed on a, on a, on a lease wow. and I moved in and we, it was five years ago. Yeah. So for five years I made 17 records out there. Nice. <laughs> and had, you know, some of the biggest bands in the world come down there and record right. and kind of in secret. Right. You know, because it's very isolated. Oh, and yeah. Nobody really knew about it. And I didn't make a big deal about it. Right. And I wouldn't let him put anything on his website because, you know, I didn't want fans of these bands showing up. It's down kind there. of a weird thing. It's a little yeah. sidetrack, but it's like, it's kind of strange. Like, if you get something like Rush or a lot of the heavy, like the heavier bands you work with have very obsessed, maybe, <laughs> exactly. fans. I mean, you have to be very careful. All it. it takes is, you know, hey, you know, Corn or uh, Alice in Chains yeah, Jesus, or right. Rush or yeah. whoever is recording down at Dark Horse. You know, there's no, you know, a lot of studios yeah. have gates and walls and layers of mm-hmm. people you have to get through to get into the studio. But that studio yeah. wasn't like that. I mean, I, <laughs> some people did find out. We had fans down oh, no. there sitting in the parking lot waiting for us to show up some days. You oh, know, jeez. Yeah. You know, which was, it's fine, but, you know, people were cool, but, you yeah. know, so I was in there for five years and it was great. Yeah. And then it kind of came, it kind of turned into, well, five years is a lot to be in the same room. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I was kind of ready for a new space. Yeah. And that's what brought me to the new location that we're at yeah. right now. You told me a little bit of history earlier, but this, so this is Roy Orbison was built by... Or for Roy it, Orbison? It was commissioned, from what I've been told, it was commissioned for Roy Orbison in right. 1968. Wow. And they spent about a year building the studio. Yeah. And, I mean, if all of you out there who are listening could <laughs> see it, you would see that, you know, this is built back in an era of when they built rooms for sound. Right, yeah. You know, it's it was really cool. There's all these, all the angles are... Or, you know, the walls lean in a little bit. There's no parallel, nothing. Yeah, everything's really pitched yeah, and yeah. angled. And, you know, the quality of the materials they use to build it are, yeah. you know, pretty high. And it's a really cool spot. There's a lot of cool wood. Like in this upstairs room we're sitting in, it's like, it looks like a neat place, but it sounds good too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You can yeah. just feel it by sitting in it. It's one yeah. of those old, when I first walked in here, I was just like, wow, the air, you can feel it in the air. Yeah, you know when you walk into an older kind of classic studio mm-hmm. and the air just 
It's got a feeling and a Something smell happened. and a yeah. vibe, you know. And and then I was like, holy crap, this can be my space. <laughs> right. Oh, my God. You know, so same kind of deal as, as with the last spot. I worked out a deal with the owner and mm-hmm. we came up with a, you know, a lease amount. And I yeah. moved all my stuff from, from Dark Horse. I moved it all up here now. And right. I'm going to camp out up here for... Is this your console then? Or did you say that... I think you said that was one that was here. That is the console that was here. My yeah. console had the, the the room configuration was too different. Oh yeah. My console okay. had has the patch bay on the console oh, itself. Right. The yeah, console yeah. down in the room, the patch bay is in the wall. Oh right. So that would have created a bunch of oh, tearing it. up the floor <laughs> and rewiring and just yeah. reconfiguring. Yeah. And you know, they both of us weren't totally sure, you know, if this was gonna work out, how it was mm-hmm. gonna work out, how long it's gonna work out. And they didn't, you know, want to go through the trouble oh, of God, yeah. taking you know, the room apart to get their board out. And ultimately my board was too big. Right. My right. board is 14 and a half feet. <laughs> <laughs> and their board is like maybe 12, right, right at right. 12 feet. So, right. you know, the doors on either side of the room would have been like clunk, <laughs> clunk and squeeze into it. through it. So, but I kept my board. I just had right. it taken apart and it's cool. back in storage. Right. You know, it's. Oh, they're both SSLs too. Yeah. So you got that familiarity. Yeah. 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 This board isn't that much different. And I had yeah. them do, I had the tech. There's a great tech here, a guy named Warren who's worked. You know, he worked for SSL. He oh, worked wow. for studios his, pretty much his whole life. Yeah. He did a couple mods on the center section for it. Awesome. To make it kind of <laughs> like my old board. Right, right. Opened up some headroom on it. So it's nice. That's cool. It's a good sounding desk. Yeah. That's really nice of them to set this up. Yeah. Get you in. It's Who fantastic. Who was working out of here right before you, do you know? Um, I don't know. There was, yeah. a, there, I think there was a dude in here who was primarily doing writing Gotcha. Writing and right. mixing, so he wasn't really yeah. utilizing the recording spaces, right? Like right. like I'm going to. Now I walked in like today. There's you see, there's amps and keyboards, and is there always a lot of uh, instruments and stuff of yours here? Yeah, yeah. Everything yeah. in here is mine. Yeah, all the all that stuff I've been collecting for yeah what, twenty years or so, and right. You know, I feel like there's a lot of tools needed to make records that a lot of dudes and bands don't have. Right. You know, right. and I like to give, you know, drummers the options to use snare drums and cymbals that they might've never used or had before. Right. And guitar players, you know, not every guitar player has a variety of Les Pauls or right. a flying V or a couple oh, different totally. SGs <laughs> and same thing with amplifiers. You know, yeah. I've got Marshalls and Bogners and Friedman's and AC thirties. Yeah. And <laughs> it's kind of the, you know, the, right. it's, it's like my toolbox. Yeah. Yeah. Except it's a lot heavier <laughs> <laughs> and you need room to put it. Yeah. And, and same thing yeah. with bases, ba- oh, different gosh, bases, yeah. a P bass and a jazz right. bass and a telly bass. They and, sound different. Yeah. They, they all sound different and they all lend yeah. themselves to yeah. making these records. Right. You know, if you hire me, you get all my stuff too. On the other end of that scale, though, like working with someone like Rush, I mean, do they send down a truck full of stuff, you know, pallets to unload? Yeah, they did. We uh, the first time I ever worked with them, I mean, the drums were pretty were pretty covered. Neil had his set, yeah, that he wanted to use. You wouldn't want to sub out his drums without a nice conference. He's got such a great sound, (laughs) you know. Yeah, all his drum sets were custom built. Yeah. Um, but Alex has gone through so many different years mm-hmm. of different kind of amps and I've different kind of guitars and pedals. Yeah. And, you know, when I first met him, I was like, dude, you have to have a warehouse full of gear, don't you? <laughs> and he was like, yeah, I do. 
So we went over there one oh, day wow. and I was just like, oh my God, high watts and marshals and cabinets. And oh man. He's like, oh yeah, that's the amp I used on 2112. And I'm just like, uh, okay, let's use that. He's like, oh, it doesn't work anymore. I'm like, let's have it in the room anyway. It looks cool. You it'll, know? Make us, it'll be good vibes. The, the main thing with Alex was the old guitars. I wanted to oh. use all the old guitars, wow, which really? was his Tobacco Sunburst mm-hmm. ES335. It was a 63 that his mom wow. bought him for Christmas. Oh, man. And the white 355, mm-hmm. you know, that's in the limelight <laughs> video. Yeah, <laughs> I can visualize that. Right? Yeah, totally. And, you know, some that's various awesome. Les Pauls and SGs, and a, yeah. I brought a bunch of my guitars and amps and stuff. Yeah. So we kind of complimented each other's gear, you know. Yeah. And Getty has, you know, his 72P uh, jazz bass, which right. he's pretty much used on all the records. And right. he had some old SVTs. I mean, it was pretty yeah. simple. I mean, yeah. the sound of Rush is <laughs> those guys. Yeah, isn't it? You know. <laughs> was that pretty amazing? I mean, that's like, when I heard you were doing that, I was like, yay for Nick. You know, like, that's <laughs> that's kind of getting to go down into, into your childhood and for sure live a fantasy or something it was man sometimes i still can't believe it happened yeah you know we made two records together and the first one was it did great for them Mm -hmm. you know and i kind of feel like they were looking for somebody to inject some you know energy back into them and what they were doing and tell them that it was okay to be themselves right you know they were i felt like they were they were looking for a direction at that point in their mm-hmm. careers. I mean, they had made so many records. Yeah. You know, and they had just gotten back together after Neil's hiatus right, and made a right. record that was a little, it was too heavy and disjointed and it didn't really sound like Rush that much. And I, I liked it, but I didn't right. love it. Right. And um, when we got together, I was just kind of like, no, more fills and classic fills. And, yeah. you know, because as a Rush fan, lifelong Rush fan, I knew what I wanted to hear. Right, right. <laughs> so I kind of... We all would, right? Yeah, I just kind of <laughs> tried to guide them into yeah. what... You know, I feel like the first record we made was their kind of mid 80s early 90s we kind of we kind of touched on that era of rush right and then the last record we made was total 70s yeah very early 80s style rush right you know there's a song in there called headlong flight that's like almost nine minutes long and it has a drum solo in the middle last time i went through and listened to, to both those records i was just just digging it and i was like you know and it's really telling i think sometimes when someone has a has the experience of being a young fan when they were big and then being able to come back and go, Hey, you know, help guide them back towards things that we all dug back then. Yeah. I've, I've been yeah. able to kind of get that point across in a few bands, you know, Alice yeah. in Chains is right. another band. Right. You know, when I first started working with them, I, I drove around listening to the record, um, dirt yeah. in yeah. my car for a couple weeks before yeah. I even met with them just to like, Okay, what did I love about Alice in Chains, mm-hmm. and how are they going to do this with a new singer, and what's it? How's how is this going to work? You know, and yeah. I just kind of guided them down to what I loved about Alice in Chains, mm-hmm. play to their strengths. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's okay yeah. to be yourselves <laughs> because you know a lot of bands yeah have gripped Alice in Chains. Yeah, same thing with yeah. Korn, same thing with a band like Corn. Jeez, right? <laughs> you know, there's so many bands that sound like Corn. Right. It's almost hard for Corn to be themselves. You <laughs> sure, know, sure. Yeah. So somebody like myself is going, no, man, do do that, do those drum fills, right. do those guitar riffs. Right. You know, right. I, th- I think when bands kind of get older, 
they almost lose sight a little bit about what made people like them in the right. first place. Or they want change kind of too sometimes. And that's, that's, you know, that's the push and pull. Exactly. Right, for sure. And I think you can do both. Yeah. I exactly. think you can change, but you can be familiar at the same time, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, and, and that's, that's kind of the hard part, but, yeah. but working with these bands and working with them together, we've been able to do that. Yeah, across the board on kind of all of them. You do a lot of pre-production on those kind of projects. Yeah, I'm yeah. assuming songwriting. Yeah, and, you know, lots of writing, yeah. lots of pre-production, lots of demoing, lots yeah. of lots of listening. Yeah, you know, I t- you know, I think having time to make these records is one of the best parts about making these records great. Is because you have time to listen. Yeah, you know, and yeah. especially when you're doing pre-production and demoing, you know, you're not so much unloading the your budget on being in expensive studios you right. can make demos in rehearsal rooms and jam right. rooms or come into a small demo situation where you can you know not go too crazy with the recording but you can yeah. at least record the songs yeah and then have time to listen to them think about it there's a record for yeah. a band called hail i just made a record called uh for hailstorm mm-hmm. we spent 18 months making the record yeah wow. and I'd say 16 of those months was just writing and Mm -hmm. demoing and recording songs, all kinds of different kinds of songs and different versions of the songs until we got them right. Yeah. And then by the end of the record, we had 12 amazing songs. I think we demoed over 50. Oh my God. You know, like literally (laughs) demoed 50 songs. Yeah. And if two weeks later it was like, yeah, that song's all right. Yeah. Next. Move it. (laughs) Uh, Or, you know, some, there's only one song on the record that made it through the whole 16 month writing process. There's only one song that was from the original session. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. So (laughs) all those other songs kind of went by the wayside and, you know, for whatever reasons they weren't, you know, they didn't, you know, I I feel like a great song is a song you want to listen to right after you're done hearing it. Yeah. As soon as it's over. Let's check that out again. I want to hear that again. What just (laughs) happened? What was that? You know, definitely. And, and I'm not even talking about, you know, radio songs or mm-hmm. whatever, but just any song. Yeah. You know, because I, I like to make these records. I like to make every song mean something. I want every song to be to be kick ass. Yeah. You yeah. know, I'm not into, you know, filler. Yeah. Fillers <laughs> and throwaways and stuff. Yeah. And yeah. So it's, it's, you know, that's that's kind of a goal that I have when I make these records is to really make strong bodies yeah. of work and not have it be about just one or two songs. Because you still got to work on the other songs. Right, right, right. And it's no fun to record something right. that you don't like or not everybody's totally stoked do, on. Do you ever get pushback a little bit? Like people going, no, I think we're good. And you're like, I think you can go further. All the time. Yeah. <laughs> and I always push back. Yeah. <laughs> always. Every time, yeah. man. Yeah. You know, and, I, you know, it, it's been working. You know, I just use my gut and it's yeah. a big one, you know, my, when my gut tells yeah. me it's right yeah. for myself, that's when I can, I can relax and say, we got it. Yeah. You know, we got it. And again, a lot of bands and a lot of artists I work with, they like to get pushed. Right. They like to be pushed into different lyrical ideas and different mm-hmm. melodies and different guitar parts and play solos that they've never played before right. and explore new ground. Right. I mean, as a, as a musician myself, I was always that way. Yeah, yeah. You know, right. when I was sitting in my bedroom trying to figure out Iron Maiden songs, <laughs> I kept trying until I got it. Yeah. And until right. I got it, I just kept trying and trying and trying, you know. Yeah, it's a push. You I know? think, yeah, it's the same kind of thing, I think. Yeah, totally. 
with with something like hailstorm you're saying like 18 months are you working on other projects in the in the same time frame on like, that particular yeah. record, I was. We were we were doing you know two weeks of writing, yeah. then we take a couple weeks off. Right. Two more weeks of writing, take a couple weeks off. Right. Um, and then there was one stretch last summer where we stopped for two months. Yeah. Because the band had a, a little mini tour to do in the uh, states yeah. and Europe, and I think they went to Japan for a week. So they had about seven weeks of touring. Right. So while they were doing that, I went into the studio with Allison Chains. Like Such a lot a of the, sound. yeah, and like yeah, a lot man. of these bands I work with, it's really an honor and a privilege for me to be included right. on these projects. Yeah. You know, whether it's Rush or Allison Chains or the Deftones, I love the Deftones. Right, right. You know, and then working with new bands and becoming new friends with, you know, the Hailstorm Band and yeah. Black Star Riders and right. the guys in Mastodon. I know Mastodon. I was thinking about that today. I haven't heard that record, and I was like. I've got to go get that because I love that band and seeing them live. They're so intense. One of my favorite, yeah. all-time favorite bands, man. man. And again, it's like this amazing career that I've had. I've mm-hmm. gotten to work with so many bands yeah. that I'm a fan of. Is there anyone that you, you've never worked with that you'd, you're you just dying, like some of your dream projects? And I'd like to work with Slipknot. Oh. I'd like to make a Slipknot record. <laughs> and You know, the holy, yeah. the holy grail of metal is to make a metallica record i guess you're right <laughs> i would love i would love to make a metallica record but you know who knows yeah you yeah. know i'm just Lord looking knows. for good bands with yeah. good songs and cool people and i'm right. looking at you know i don't always have to work with big signed hit selling bands i love to right. work with smaller bands there's this band from atlanta called 68 mm-hmm. that i've i saw live just kind of off the cuff and approach them afterwards i'm like i love your band and yeah. so i think we're going to make a record later this year and, oh cool you know it's yeah just like i mean i assume a lot of work comes your way from bands that are obviously massively inspired by bands you've worked with you know yeah and, and you know like you said bands coming from other countries and such we might not know as well over here mm-hmm. in the u.s but mm-hmm. uh, i'm sure you get to see a real variety tons you know yeah. getting to work with ghost was a big deal for oh, me oh yeah because i right. you know i i heard them you know just on a whim uh yeah. i love ghost because yeah. it reminds me of this old band called merciful fate that i used mm-hmm. to listen to yeah you yeah. know so that totally sounds like that and wow they're a lot of fun to work with yeah yeah that's cool it's yeah. a good it's a good i mean you're you're in a niche but you've got a nice variety yeah with that as well Has there, have you ever taken on projects that are just really maybe outside of what you're known for just to have a variety um, Apoc- there's a band called Apocalyptica mm-hmm. who is kind of in the same lane that I'm in, but there's no guitars. It's all cellos. Right, right. right. It's cellos and drums. I've and heard vocals. about them and stuff. Yeah. And that was a, that was a really fun project because I love strings and right. symphonies and orchestra and all that. Right. So it was a cool approach for them to 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 come at me with. There's no guitars or bass. <laughs> it's all cellos and double right. bass. So, I mean, that was kind of out of the box. Yeah, um, that's pretty awesome. There's an artist I'm working with right now called Cobra, mm-hmm. and she's from a band called Cobra and the Lotus from Calgary, Canada. And yeah. she, they're kind of a rock metal band, and we're going to make like a folk album. Oh, cool. She wants to make like a folky, bluesy, country right. kind of record. So we're just kind of the beginning stages of that, but that's going to be pretty different for me. That's cool. So I'm excited about that. Yeah. I mean, I love all kinds of music. I figure. <laughs> I love rock music the yeah. best just because yeah. that's what I grew up. Oh, listen sure. to and i felt like that's what i can yeah. i can 
you know, do the best at. I can lend myself to making those kind of records the best. Mm-hmm. But I listen to all kinds of stuff. Yeah. You know. I said, one, one of the things I remember, um, and uh, I just read the interview with you again that, that Garrett had done. And uh, and one of the things I, me- I noticed was uh, you were talking about uh, guitar amp simulators and stuff. And then I saw like the, the Kempner or whatever it's called mm-hmm. down there. Mm-hmm. Have you found versions of that now that you're kind of digging it's a, that technology's changed a it's lot. changed a lot man yeah i mean i've got a kemper and i've got an axe effects which are kind of the mm-hmm. two big companies right. you know that are trying to get everybody to use them <laughs> go, go direct exactly <laughs> to retire all their amplifiers yeah. um they're both great tools yeah you know for me having a big amp collection and, and heads and cabinets mm-hmm. you know for me they're still in those boxes, I'm still looking for that that sound that you you still can't get from yeah you know I'm convinced it's the air between like between. The, between the speaker and the mic. <laughs> I know, me too. You know, it, it's it's, it's that space. It just gives the yeah. some there, there's even though the mics are usually close, right. there's still something about that space that's giving the sound time to develop. Yeah, that right. a lot of those boxes just. They can't. They just can't do it. Still, yeah. I don't know what it is, man. And we we'll even model our own sounds and put them in there, right? And they get really close, right? Right. You know, I'm convinced that it's because of the sample rate, really, because none of these boxes do high sample rates yet. Hmm. And I you wonder. know, just like recording at 44.1 versus 96k, yeah, 44.1 is is great, yeah, and lots of huge records that sound amazing have been recorded at 44.1. Right. But when you record at 96 and you compare the two, 96K gives you more depth and more width. Something, yeah. You know, I'm convinced that it's the same kind of thing with yeah. with these these guitar simulator boxes. You know, they're mm-hmm. all, you know, the bottom stops and the high end stops. Right, right. And, and they're restricted because of the sample rates. Right, right. So in, mm-hmm. you know, analog recording and analog recording guitars. It's very different. You yeah. don't have those yeah. restrictions. Yeah. You can you can turn the treble up even more and more and more, yeah, and you yeah. can make it brighter with a console yeah. EQ or an outboard EQ, yeah. and those parameters kind of stop in the digital world. Yeah, you know yeah. because there's a conversion that's happening, and there's a process, digital process that happens in the box. Right. You right. know, they're great tools, and yeah. I use them both yeah. all the time. They're never the main sounds. Right. Like right. the main left and right guitar. I use them as convenience for making demos and stuff like that. Right, sure, and, right. You know, both of those boxes have great sounding effects, mm-hmm. you know, reverbs and delays right. and phasers and flangers and stuff like that. And they're, it's quick. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's kind of more of a convenience. Yeah, yeah. You know? But I still get a kick out of micing up a cabinet <laughs> with two or three different mics and oh, yeah. trying different preamps. Especially like lead guitars and yeah. stuff. You've got to find a... a a voice that feels classic to people. You yeah. Know? And I've, and I found through the years of, of being in rooms with guitar players yeah, that they just, the guitar reacts differently mm-hmm. through an amp as opposed as through a Kemper. Right. It right. just, it just does. I mean, they're so close now in another yeah, five or 10 years. <laughs> I'm then, wondering. Yeah. yeah then yeah. It'll, I think it'll be even more insane than yeah. it is now and they're great yeah. useful tools i just look at it as a tool yeah yeah it's just like a stomp box to me sure the kemper sure. is a big stomp box yeah with all the pedals built into one thing yeah oh i know i mean i can imagine like 
if you're tracking stuff in an apartment in New York City, like, you yeah, know, like, it's great. Thank you. <laughs> and, I, and I know a lot of bands, yeah. I think they're more useful in the live world oh, because bands can just take, you know, their Les Paul and they can take their Kemper and they can put them in the overhead on a plane. God, right. And when these bands do fly dates and, yeah. you know, they don't have to pay for thousands of pounds of cartage anymore. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. a consistency that they have every single night. Yeah. So I personally feel like those boxes are maybe geared a little more towards yeah. the live format versus bringing him into the studio format, yeah. which again, they're totally killer for the studio. Right. But when you have a room full of vintage amps, heads and cabinets, <laughs> and you have access to yeah. microphones, oh, and I know. all the kick-ass preamps, it's, yeah, I, I happen to, you know, I sway a little more in that direction. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> You're known for some really great drum sounds, too. But, you know, the current trend is a lot of uh, samples and mm-hmm. things like that. Do you do you find mm-hmm. yourself delving into that heavily or trying? Not really. You know? I mean, yeah. you know, I feel I'm, like I hear it on your stuff. I'm a drum freak, man. Yeah. You know, and, and I've been lucky to work with some of the best drum techs in the business. Yeah. And I learned a lot. Yeah. You know, back when we had big ass budgets for making these records, you could budget five or seven grand for a drum tech. Wow. You know, <laughs> and, and I learned yeah. how important it is to, to what kind of head you're using mm-hmm. on what kind of drum and where to place the drums in the room and the tuning of the drums. I yeah. mean, that's so important. Right. You know, and when I'm when I'm doing pre-production with a band, I'm hyper focusing on watching the drummer. How does he hit? Where is mm-hmm. he hitting? How are the drums reacting to the particular environment they're yeah. in? You know, so I've kind of taken all that and put my own spin on it. And I've been my own drum tech for mm-hmm. five or six years now. Right. And I do all the teching on the records, right. you know, because again, a, a lot of drum guys, you know, they're just playing. Mm-hmm. They're not paying total crazy attention to the tuning or what kind of head it is yeah. and when they're recording records with me i don't want them to be i want them to be focused on the song yeah and their parts i don't want them to worry about That's, yeah what is happening <laughs> you know but drummers are pretty hardcore creatures of habit oh yeah it's hard to find a drummer <laughs> you know who doesn't want to just get the drum key and crank the shit out of everything because the tighter the heads are they're easier to play right and we're spring back exactly yeah. exactly yeah, exactly. yeah. But that might not be the best thing for the song. Right. So I try to bring that to their attention and, and to say, hey, man, I got I got the tunings covered. Yeah. I'll change all the heads. I'll do all the tunings. I just want you to, to focus on the playing. And most dudes are totally cool with that. Nice, they, they, nice. they want it to sound great. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I've got no problem stopping a drummer in the middle of a take if the snare head is dead mm-hmm. and changing it right then. Yeah. And, yeah. and tuning it right back to the note that it was at get it, five yeah. minutes ago. Yeah. And all right, cool. All right, we're punching on <laughs> the second chorus. Oh my gosh, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. I do that all the time. Yeah. You yeah. know, because, you know, when you get in the mode of tracking a drum set, you get hyper-focused on oh, yeah. all the tunings and, and everything about the kit yeah. itself. Right. So, right. you know, and I'm a, I've always been a drum freak and me and yeah. drummers usually hit it off yeah. pretty quick. <laughs> You're a bass player too, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, that kind of makes sense to me too. And it's like, I watch the, the drummers when, you know, if it's a, just a cold call tracking date, I'll be sitting there looking through the glass and watching their foot and seeing what they're doing and trying to make sure that mm-hmm. it feels right. To mm-hmm. me. Like it's going to be the right thing. And mm-hmm. I want to adjust people's patterns sometimes. And yeah. it's crazy. Cause I just, I think like, that's how you mix a great record is like, you, you start by tracking a great record, yeah. you know? Yeah. You got to get yeah. it all on tape. You get yeah. that feel and that vibe, Yeah, you know? And, and if, 
you know, I don't mix a lot of the records I make because mm-hmm. I feel like by the time it's I get to the mix, I'm I'm burn on it. I can't. <laughs> it's hard to be objective. Anymore. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I have no problem handing a record off to a great mixer yeah. who can mix it yeah, and, yeah. and have it come back. Because then, then I almost get a fresh perspective on it mm-hmm. again because I'm hearing somebody else. Oh, yeah. His version of what they think it should sound like. Yeah. And, and then, you know, it's easy for me to be like, hey, you know, turn this up, turn this down, maybe right. lay off the lay off the bus compression a little bit. I want to hear the song speak a little bit more. Right, right. You know, and, and you know, and as far as samples on drums and stuff, you know. I'm not really in the room a lot of the time when, yeah, when right. a lot of mixers mix. Doing that. So I don't, you know, yeah. as long as it sounds great, I don't, I don't really care. <laughs> you know, I know that yeah, when, yeah. I know that when I mix sometimes, whether it's stuff I've done or other people's records, right. I'll put snare and kick samples in if, if I need a little more punch. Right. Right. You know, because the drum set is a fully acoustic instrument. Yeah. There's right. nothing electric happening. No. <laughs> and when you pile on electric guitars, <laughs> yeah, yeah. the biggest guitar sound in the world, oh, yeah. and then you get the biggest fucking bass sound in the world with the P bass through an SVT and a yeah. couple different DIs, you got five tracks of bass right, and right. 30 tracks of guitar, and then you've got vocals, <laughs> right. all this stuff. Yeah. And then you look at the drums and you're like, okay, well, we've got this acoustic instrument here that's just getting crushed <laughs> right. by all this electric stuff. Totally, totally. So, you know, at the mix, I'll put my balances up. And if I just can't get the snare or the kick as loud or as mm-hmm. punchy as I want through kind of traditional methods, right. then I've, you know, I've got an arsenal of samples that cool. I've made and... You know, me and other engineers and producers have traded. For, right, right. You know, hey, you got some samples? Dude, I got some too. Let's trade. Yeah. You know, it's really easy to stick a USB stick in a rig and get oh, gosh, yeah. hundreds of samples and vice versa. Right, right. So, you know, I'm as I'm as guilty as that as I think anybody is out there. But I always try to use them in a tasteful way. Yeah. And it's never really about the sample. Right. You know, like the record I'm mixing right now, you right. know, the artist was like, Hey man, I feel like the samples might be a little loud. I'm like, all right, cool. I'll pull them down. Yeah. You know, I might've been leaning on them a little bit too right, hard. Right. So I just went and pulled them back down and now nice. dude's totally happy. And yeah, I know. noticed on the mix, you were just printing that the Tom's had a lot of presence on the fills. And yeah. Like really spoke out there. Yeah. And that's just, Felt you know, good. it's a combination of EQing yeah. in the box and EQing on the desk. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I like. I definitely like to use both formats. Yeah, I'm not like it's got to be analog or nothing, <laughs> and I'm not like a mix it in the box guy. Right. You know, I kind of right. like. I think the complement of what we can do in the box yeah. and having access to a giant analog console and old mm-hmm. tube outboard gear. Right. I, mean, I think those worlds can coexist, and <laughs> I feel like when you use Works them, well. yeah, when you use them together, good things happen. Yeah, you were. I was watching you, and you were doing some some manual moves even though you're on a automated <laughs> console and you're manually doing stuff during the mix you know super old school and I'm, yeah I, that's how that's i awesome. like to mix that is awesome i feel like i feel like the mix is a, it's a performance yeah yeah you know and i mean honestly i just don't have the patience to sit there and program all that shit right it takes forever <laughs> the time it takes to program all those moves and right. save shit and then have something get lost yeah. i could have mixed the whole song already yeah I, I I frequently I, my console has silver uh, fader caps, you know. So people, and, but it's not automated, mm-hmm. and people come in and they go, "Oh, you got automation!" And I'm like, the only people that ask and get excited are people who have never sat and done that. Yeah, you know, <laughs> automation is yeah. 
Oh my god! I got a love hate relationship with it because it's very <laughs> tedious, and sometimes yeah. it'll take you out of the song. Yeah, you know, it you're becomes you, sort of mechanical. Yeah, it becomes mechanical, and you become mm-hmm. kind of obsessed with the the technology and and the little teeny tweaks. Right. And sometimes the song can get lost in that. Yeah. And I'm just speaking for myself. Sure. Some guys are rule at it, and they can do yeah. it super quick. I don't do a whole lot of mixing. Yeah. So it it is kind of a little bit of a you know. A separation for me in that and yeah i've done so much mixing like on my other ssl it doesn't have automation really yeah it's got all the cards and all the yeah. connectors but it didn't the, the place that had it they didn't order it with automation oh, wow. it was kind of like <laughs> a future upgrade so i just got used to that <laughs> yeah yeah and, and i used to mix on a lot of old neves and they didn't yeah. have automation Absolutely. you know it was the let's let's strap a pencil across three or four <laughs> faders and tape it and you can move everything yeah. all at once and you do the little tape bumpers like yeah, top and bottom totally yeah, I, love those. I got pencil you <laughs> yeah. know there's pencil marks all over the board and yeah you yeah. know like my engineer nathan he'll help me ride stuff and right and, and you know when, and when you're printing back into pros tools you can punch in on your mix right right so if you're going into the chorus and halfway through the chorus you get the drum level right or you forget to ride a fill yeah you just go back and punch it in right <laughs> it's easy huh? it's easy yeah yeah you know i know i love that part of it <laughs> yeah that, that part is made yeah. you know unautomated mixing a lot easier yeah. to do and it's hard to automate in the box and have that hit a console especially mm-hmm. if you're using compression and eq on the console because right those rides affect right the channel per se yeah or you know? i work that way and it's, yeah it's, it, you have to kind of if you get different results than you, if you had an insert. You kind of have to do yeah. one or the other. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's weird, huh? Yeah. Um, and you, I noticed you work with working with Nathan. You have an assistant mm-hmm. engineer and you yep. started as an engineer. I did. And, uh, does it like just help you on the workload? And he helps me on all on everything, man. Yeah. He's a great engineer. He mm-hmm. um he came from he came from Blackbird actually. Yeah, I kind of stole him from Blackbird. <laughs> he became you know when I because when I came here, you know Nashville is a country town. Yeah, most of the stuff they were doing at Blackbird was country, but yeah. not all of the assistants that work there loved country music per right. se. And Nathan happened to be kind of the house metalhead who like Perfect. you know stoner metal and do yeah. metal and stuff awesome. so they kind of fit him with me as like here's your guy he likes yeah. the same kind of music and we just became friends and he's yeah. really really smart and he's yeah. got a great work ethic and he was really interested in how i was making records and right. i had another engineer a guy named paul figueroa mm-hmm. who lives in los angeles and we made a lot of records together, yeah. but when I moved here, it became a little more complicated because of budgets. Right. You know, it, it became harder to fly an engineer all the way here and mm. pay him a good salary right. and get him a hotel and a rental car and a per yeah. diem. It's yeah, taking yeah. a big chunk out of the budget. So yeah. I had to find somebody local and I found Nathan and kind of took, we, me and Paul both took him under our wing yeah. and kind of showed him how we like things to be done. And, and then when I moved to dark horse, Five years ago, I called Nathan and I was like, hey, man, you ready to yeah. jump ship Yeah, <laughs> and and come work with me yeah. exclusively? And he right. was up for it. And, and well, they're always we, training new people at Blackbird. Yeah. So there's a whole academy. Yeah. <laughs> and it was time for him to kind of, you know, jump yeah. into it and yeah. take, take the leap, per se. Yeah. You know, and it's been a, it's worked out great, man. It, it great. really having somebody like Nathan really helps me focus on the songs mm-hmm. and the content and work with the band members and not so much be worried about, you know, where the mic on the snare is or right. what's being used on this and that. I mean, I still always look at that stuff right. and, 
you know, Nathan's got no problem with me stepping up to the board and turning knobs yeah, and moving sure. mics and all that. We, we, you know, we do it all together. Right. Right. You know, it, it's, it's a good, it's a good working relationship. Yeah. And I think, you know, any great producer has got a great engineer yeah. with him. Yeah. It's a lot. You know? I mean, if you think of trying to tack, uh, you know, tackle every single thing yourself, you, you mm-hmm. create a lot more work for yourself. Absolutely. You know, and if you think like we just walked away and you said, you know, print, print an instrumental, um, probably some stems, whatever, mm-hmm. whatever the song needs to be done at that point. Yeah. And you don't have to sit there and do, you know, 30 minutes of something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I already kind of yeah. mixed it. Yeah. You already did. You set the, you set the bar. This is how it is. Yeah. And now I yeah. can kind of get my head out of the, out of the room and yeah. out of that environment well, and you can work and refocus. Yeah. 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 It's good. Yeah. No, it's great. Well, any uh, closing thoughts? And it's great to see you. And I know it's talk always to good. you again, man. It's <laughs> a treat. I'm glad you're still doing the magazine, yeah, and speaking, and doing podcasts. You know, I think Stay you're busy. <laughs> you're a very, very valuable resource and Thanks, a valuable man. part of all of this still. Yeah. And I hope you never stop. It's gonna keep going. I think I can speak for a lot of people out there who <laughs> love what you do oh, and, thanks, and you bring a very important thing that is missing in a lot of ways now, Yeah, you know, and you've continued to do that. You know, curated, uh, content and looking at the, you know, the art making records and that's, that's going to be it. There yeah. it is, you know? No, it's great, man. Keep it focused. I think I speak for everybody out there who's listening to this, that we hope you keep doing it for well, thank you. forever. Well, I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much. Hey, it's great Excellent. to talk to you again. Oh man. Super cool. I'm glad we, so glad we did this. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Find us online at tapeop.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time.